0: you came this morning because you saw on our website that we do expository preaching. That is true, but not this morning. Um, We'll be back in Colossians when I get back from Ukraine and Israel in a few weeks. It is our tradition in January to present to you, I think in keeping with the end of the book of Hebrews, where the author tells us to identify men whose lives are worth emulating and imitate their faith. So this is the 15th installment of this series of men of God, most of whom I've covered were from outside the Bible, but today we'll spend our whole time looking at the biography of the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord, We praise God for your work in the lives of your apostles and in all of the men and women who have come since then and have lived faithful lives, pointing others to Christ. We are here this morning as the fruit of their labor. We are here because of the righteousness of Christ, his finished work on the cross. We are here in a lesser sense, because of Paul's faithfulness. Help us, Father, not to worship him this morning, but to worship the one he served. May you be glorified in this. Help me, O Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have 27 pages. Pray for a miracle. (laughs) If you are a Christian, you are certainly no stranger to the Apostle Paul. Aside from Jesus himself, I think it's safe to argue that there has been no human being on earth that has impacted the world more than this one solitary life. After the devastating experience of coming face to face with the resurrected Christ, Paul, the great persecutor of the church, became the most zealous servant of Christ the church has ever known. In the wake of the Damascus Road experience, Paul's whole life was motivated by one single passion, namely, in his words, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is Paul's way of saying that he exists to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God. You say, what about to the joy of all peoples? That's coming. As he labored to show the world what Jesus is like, that he is the long-awaited Son of God, the only Savior, His life and teaching exploded upon the world with an impact that continues to reverberate some 2,100 years later. Think about it. His inspired theology transformed Western thought. His biblical ethic transformed Western morality. His scriptural anthropology brought major reforms to civil government, the workplace, and the family. His writings were the grounds for the eventual abolition of, sl- of the slave trade, and eventually slavery itself. Along with that came a new dignity and value of women, and the protection of children, just to name a few. But more than anything, God's, Paul's God-besotted, gospel-saturated Christology brought hope and salvation to a world of Jews and Gentiles alike. This morning, for our annual biographical sermon, I want to offer you a life of Paul the Apostle of Sovereign Joy. The Apostle of Sovereign Joy. I use the word sovereign because, as we will see, Paul believed that everything in creation is under God's sovereign rule. We like to say if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. But he rules it all in ways that we will see this morning and in ways that are hard to imagine. Furthermore, I say he is the apostle of sovereign joy because whenever the gospel finds fertile soil in the heart, the immediate and lasting fruit of it is joy. These things, Jesus said in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. Full. It's okay to talk back. It'll help you stay awake. It's going to be a long one. Let's keep going. So as we read the New Testament, everyone who receives the gospel receives fullness of joy in Jesus, regardless of their circumstances. And as we read the New Testament, we don't actually meet Paul until we get to Acts chapter 7. And so take your Bibles with me and turn in the book of Acts, and I actually want you to turn to chapter 6. It's kind of a a, a run-up to chapter 7. Here we find ourselves in Jerusalem before an angry mob prepared to stone Stephen to death. Luke's account in the book of Acts mentions as kind of an offhanded side note that the the official witnesses to the stoning laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in two verses later, the beginning of the next chapter, he says, and Saul approved of his execution. But who exactly is this man, Saul, this young man, Saul? Well, to begin with, as we answer that question, we would do well to consider Paul's providential pedigree. Where did he come from? In Romans fifteen sixteen, Paul says that God called him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. What I want you to see here is at the, be- at the beginning is that generations before Saul of Tarsus was born, God was at work orchestrating things, orchestrating history, to ensure that this boy would not only be born, but that he would be uniquely qualified and situated and equipped to become the apostle to the Gentiles, like no other apostle was. If you're new to the life of the Apostle Paul, it may come as a surprise to you to learn that he was not born in Israel. And in his early days, he didn't live in Jerusalem. Rather, born in eastern Turkey to Jewish parents approximately two years after the birth of Jesus, Saul, also known by his Greek name Paul, was born and raised in a community of Jews who lived outside of Israel. He lived in Tarsus. If you can imagine it on the map, if you go from Israel, Mediterranean Sea, trace it north where it turns, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, there's Tarsus. This is where he grew up. Tarsus was a principal city of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Unlike Jerusalem, however, it was a cosmopolitan and densely populated city of mostly Gentiles. And they came from all over the world. You see, back in 170 BC, King Antiochus IV was dividing up and separating all his conquered peoples so that he could control them adequately. And in the process, he took a group of Jews and he settled them in Tarsus. Paul's ancestors were probably among this group. His father was likely a master tent maker whose craftsmen would have worked in leather and in cilicium. Cilicium uh, was a cloth woven from the hair of the large long haired black goats that lived in that area. In fact, that whole region is called Cilicia because it was so famous for this particular kind of wool. Were they made what back then were the famous black tents of the east? It was right up against the, his city was right up against the Tarsus Mountains. Paul's parents were apparently rather wealthy property owners and had inherited from their father's Roman citizenship. Nobody knows exactly how that happened, but this is no insignificant fact in Paul's story because most of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were not citizens of Rome. And hardly any Jewish people, hardly any Jewish people were Roman citizens. Citizenship was a coveted privilege carrying certain legal rights that hardly anyone had. For example, a Roman citizen could not be condemned or punished without a fair hearing, nor could they be legally scourged. And under the reign of Claudius, anyone who pretended to be a citizen when it was false would face the penalty of death. This was serious, and the privileges were highly coveted. If Paul had not been born a Roman citizen, however, he probably would have suffered an untimely death. Because if you know Paul's story, you know that on several occasions he appealed to the fact that he was a citizen just before he was about to get killed, and it saved his life. God had had sovereignly orchestrated the timing and circumstance of Paul's birth to preserve his future life in service to Christ. By a strategically sovereign providence, Paul's formative years played out in a veritable sea of Gentiles from many different lands. And because, that, because of that unique upbringing, he knew their language. He knew their customs. He was literate and well-read in Greek philosophy and poetry and law. He was able to quote them. You remember when he got to the, the Agropolis in Athens, he was able to interact with them, quoting their own poets. And he was very much acquainted with their pagan religions because he lived among them. And he spoke their language, not because he planned it, but because God did. And witness the fact that in Acts chapter 21, the Roman Roman tribune, who was about to have Paul flogged as an uncultured criminal, suddenly voiced surprise that Paul could speak the language of educated people, namely Greek. And you remember that, it's kind of toward the end of the book of Acts, where he goes to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. And they, the Jews start beating him, and the tribune has to come and rescue him. He thinks he's a criminal. He lays him on the, the, uh, the block to be scourged. And Paul says, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And instantly, everything stopped. And fear gripped the tribune who was about to flog him. Paul's mastery of Greek language was especially important when he wrote his 13 letters to the churches. They were all Gentile churches. And he was able to pen those epistles with perfect fluidity in their mother tongue, which was Greek. My point here is, Paul was uniquely familiar and comfortable among Gentiles long before he became an apostle of Jesus. God had sovereignly orchestrated his life and lineage to equip him to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And by the way, Paul knew that. He knew it. Paul knew that God had singled him out to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In Galatians 1.15, he speaks of himself in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, God set me apart before I was born. Paul believed in sovereignty. God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Paul's life and influence among the Gentiles of the first century was no accident. It was designed to the very last detail by a sovereign God who was on a mission to deliver sinners by means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that's Paul's providential pedigree. Second, let's talk about Paul's joy-dispersing tyranny. This is really interesting when you think about it. It's all backwards. How in the world did this happen? What I want you to see here is that though Paul became the foremost persecutor of the church, God, again, in his magnificent sovereignty, actually used the rage and unbelieving Saul to impel his people to obey the Great Commission. And you remember the Great Commission. Well, part of it, one of these statements of it. And Jesus basically said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and where else? To the uttermost parts of the earth. But you know what? The disciples liked Jerusalem. There was free food. There was lots of fellowship. I mean, they came for the festival. They never left. If what we know about Jewish boys from wealthy Jewish families is true, Paul's parents would have sent him by boat from Tarsus to Jerusalem for higher education sometime after his 13th birthday. We know that he did indeed receive instruction from Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Gamaliel, the grandson of Hillel, the supreme teacher of the law in Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel's teaching... Paul would have learned to teach. He would have learned to expound upon the scriptures and tradition, and he would become expert in debate, as they say. Every rabbi was expected to not only be part preacher, but part lawyer. He had to know how to debate. As a young man... Paul had a powerful mind. His own testimony in Galatians 1.14 was, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my age among my people. This was a sharp young man. I mean, there were, there were tons of young men who were coming to be trained in Jerusalem. And he stood out among them all. It is said that before a gifted young man like Saul could become a master teacher in Israel, he had to master a trade. For as F.F. Bruce explains, every Jew was bred to a trade. And in theory, no rabbi took fees, but rather supported himself by a trade. And we know that that was true of Paul. Later when he was an apostle, he supported himself by doing what? Tent making. And where did he learn that? had to come from his father sometime probably before he turned 20 therefore paul Saul, would have completed his formal studies in jerusalem and returned home to tarsus to learn his father's tent making trade in all probability he remained in tarsus with his family until a year or so after jesus's resurrection He would have been a rabbi there, he would have taught in the synagogues there, he would have ministered to his family, he probably would have had very little to do with the Gentiles besides reading their great works. But he was in Tarsus all of this time and apparently didn't get back to Jerusalem until two years, and one author I read said as many as eight years after the resurrection, Which explains why there's no record that suggests that these two notable young men, Jesus and Saul, ever met. When Paul finally returned to take up residence in Israel in his mid 30s, he encountered in person what he no doubt heard from a distance that a false teacher had arisen in Jerusalem whose name is Jesus. He himself declared that he was the promised Messiah the Son of God, and had started a religious sect that threatened the integrity of Judaism. Paul was furious. When he arrived on the scene, he discovered that this new sect had gained more of a following than he had expected. Luke says, quote, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, even such gifted men like Stephen. And by the way, think about this. Right after Pentecost, I mean, when Jesus was resurrected, there was 120 disciples. At Pentecost, they had 3,000 more. You flip a couple of pages in the book of Acts, and there's 5,000. And here the author is telling us, Luke is telling us, look, years have gone by, and it seems like the world is turning to Jesus, including another young rabbi whose name is Stephen. In fact, Stephen had earned an impressive reputation in Israel We tend to think of him merely as a deacon. But look at verse eight of chapter six. Look at this with me. We learn here that Stephen, watch this, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was more than a well-educated, sharp young man. This was a brilliant young man who God had gifted to do miracles. I mean, I don't know about you, but this description doesn't meet, you know, it doesn't match any deacon I know. <laughs> as is always the case with signs and wonders, Stephen's miracles were intended by God to authenticate his message. Namely, that the Messiah had come. He had been killed by his own people, just as the scriptures had said. He'd risen from the grave according to the scriptures. And furthermore, his name is Jesus. Stephen had been converted from Judaism. Why? Because he was a, he was a, a dumb religious person? No. Did you hear the testimony this morning, Will Dodds? Uh, when I was listening to his testimony, I was thinking of Stephen. This guy had, had everything and had the world figured out, but God. Even in the face of authenticating miracles, however, the leading Jews of Jerusalem rejected Stephen's message and its messenger. Clearly, the theology of the Jews and the theology of Paul, and I'm sorry, the the theology of Paul and the theology of Stephen were on a course for a head-on collision. One of them would have to go. And so the leading Jews in Jerusalem apparently required Stephen to debate the question in the synagogue. Just read the text carefully, you'll see it. Like Martin Luther, 1,500 years later, Stephen came prepared to engage in discourse over the meaning of relevant texts to the question of Messiah. And like Luther, he strikes us as a superb young scholar with a brilliant mind, perhaps even Paul's intellectual equal. Now, these were the sharpest young men in town, and perhaps in the whole nation. And so they call him for a debate. And standing alone before his opponents in the synagogue, Stephen sought to persuade the religious authorities, the Jews, the high priests. He sought to convince them from the Old Testament scriptures that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament pertaining to the coming Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus. From his birth to his bloody death. And resurrection. Nevertheless, Acts 6.10 tells us, look at this. Listen to this, this kind of backhanded description of Stephen. Though they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, his words only infuriated them. And it infuriated them to the point of homicidal rage. They were determined to kill him. It wasn't long after this, after this public debate, that his opponents secretly instigated men to swear falsely that they had heard Stephen blaspheme both Moses and God. Formal charges were drawn up. I don't know about you, but when I've read this story again and again, it just seems to me, you know, here's a deacon from the church. He goes out on the street, starts street preaching. Everybody gets mad, and they stone him to death. It's not the way it happened. This was a really big deal, and it was public. And at least they made a sham out of it being a legal proceeding. So formal charges were drawn up, and within a matter of hours or days, he was sentenced to death by stoning. And as the killing stones began to fly, Acts 7.55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he called out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I want to say here before we move on, That while Paul was there approving, he never forgot Stephen's words. Now, it's hardly possible to overstate the significance of the stoning of Stephen, which is why I'm spending time on it. First, because the stoning of Stephen caused thousands of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that day to scatter all over the known world, and they took the gospel with them. In Acts 11, some 15 years later, Luke explains, quote, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that would be Greek-speaking people, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, this is amazing. These are not the apostles. These are not trained people. They're not deacons. They're not pastors. They're not evangelists, or at least they didn't intend to be. All they do, I mean, these are normal people like you and me. And all they do, wherever they went, as you go, Jesus said, right? Everywhere they went, they just they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. And it multiplied and multiplied. And we should remember that Jesus said his people would be witnesses to the othermost parts of the earth. But as I said earlier, they were perfectly content to stay in Jerusalem. Why did they go? In the mystery of God's providence, God used the blood of the first martyr to send his people, to impel them to take the gospel to their neighbors and to the nations. I wonder, oh, I wonder, what will it take for some of you to become willing to go? I remember when I was a kid going to Christian camp and we sang a song that said, God never impels us, compels us to go. Oh, no, he never compels us to go. God never compels us to go against our will, but he sure makes us willing to go. (laughs) And that was the case here. They were running for their lives, and they took the gospel with them. Do you see the hand of God in this? The second reason Stephen stoning is significant is because it is here that Paul would shift from, from, becoming, from being a supporting bystander before the persecution of Christians to a violent aggressor singularly determined to wipe out this heretical sect called the Way. It wasn't until the church started to form in Antioch that the detractors of those who were called the Way started being called by people who were antagonistic to them Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Well, from here, until his Damascus Road encounter with Christ, Paul lives as a raging tyrant. Instead of finding, arresting, interrogating, imprisoning, and even killing the followers of Jesus, he is on a rampage. He is determined to track them down wherever they are and get them to blaspheme, to get them to recant, to get them to turn away from Jesus. And what I want you to see here, however, is not the picture of a small, tyrannical Pharisee, but the picture of a big and sovereign God. God is ruling over every detail of this. Because in the mystery of his sovereign providence, he turned Paul's homicidal tyranny into a joy-dispersing tyranny that scattered the seeds of the gospel all over the world. And so this is Paul's joy-dispersing tyranny. And as we continue pressing into the timeline of Paul, it isn't long before we come to the historical event that brought it all about. Paul's shocking new identity. The Damascus Road encounter was such a significant event. Luke records it three times. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. And you remember the story. And let's pick up in Acts chapter 26. In fact, if you would, just turn there with me. And we read this a little while ago, but... Let's read the narrative again, starting in verse 9. This is Paul, standing before King Agrippa at Caesarea by the sea, which last April, Terry, Terry Enns and I had the privilege of seeing it. Amazing. Oh, i got no time to tell you about it, but it's, uh, you should see it someday. Acts 26, 9. I myself was convinced, this is Paul speaking to the king, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone all around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Lord, who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand upon your feet, for I "...have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins." And a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. So let's get this. In Jerusalem, Paul got word that a substantial number of these Jesus followers had escaped to Damascus. And so he asked the Jewish council for authority to track them down. It probably took him a few weeks to make the 130 mile journey. I mean, you see commitment here, passion, rage. 130 miles. But in his zeal, he determined to do it, at least in part, right in the middle of the day. Nobody traveled in the middle of the day. Nobody travels at noon, on foot, in Israel and surroundings. Why? Because it's hot. Paul didn't care. He was determined. As they approached the town, suddenly, at about noon. Isn't this interesting? Listen to the description. Suddenly, about noon, a great light flashed from the sky, a light more brilliant than the noonday sun. How bright is that? Blinding bright. Biographer John Pollock explains listen carefully to this. He looked up within the center of the light, which blinded him from his surroundings. He faced a man of about his own age. Paul could not believe what he heard and saw all his convictions, his intellect and training, his reputation, his self-respect demanded that Jesus should not be alive. He played for time and replied, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus you are persecuting it is hard for you this kicking against the goad and then Paul knew in a second that seemed like eternity he knew he saw the Lord that he was alive just as Stephen and the others had said and that he loved not only those whom Paul persecuted but also Paul himself. This is amazing to me. And I've never seen it before. I always imagine Jesus, the angry Messiah, rebuking Paul. There's nothing in the language to suggest that. What strikes me in this narrative is that There's no wrath, there's no hostility in Jesus' words. He was simply, almost gently cleansing Paul from his poisonous hatred of the believers that he was chasing. He was washing him from the poison of his disdain for Christ himself. Jesus said, it is hard to kick against the goad. A goad in that day was a pointed stick used by herdsmen to prod their ox forward. Jesus' statement seems to suggest that ever since the stoning of Stephen, Paul had been resisting the goading of his conscience, the goading of the spirit, never willing To honestly admit his guilt and rebellion against God, Paul had convinced himself that his fight was against unrighteous people when in fact he was fighting Jesus, his Savior. The very presence of the glorious, omnipotent, and gracious Christ was enough to break Paul's hard heart. What shall I do? He cried. And from that question rushed a river of faith and surrender and worship and love. And from the heart of Jesus came a torrent of forgiveness and righteousness and redemption and eternal life where sin abounded grace much more abounded. As Paul himself would say later, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light, of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. Paul wrote that and I wonder if Paul was reflecting on the day when he actually gazed upon the face of God on the Damascus road. Well, my dear friend, from where you are sitting, can you identify with Paul? You look so righteous on the outside. You blend in so beautifully among religious people, but deep in your heart, you know that you are kicking against the goad. You suppress your guilt and your shame, and you're only the only person you're fooling is yourself. Do you think? that if you were to come to Jesus that he would be harsh with you that he would reject you that he would hate you do you believe that he would judge you do you think that the stench of your sin rises higher and blacker than the apostle paul's and yet Jesus was gentle with him He stood ready to forgive him. He laid before Paul the offer of free grace. And so he does before you this very hour, if you will receive it. Say to him, oh, say to him, Lord, what must I do? And he will say to you, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened with a heavy load, and I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, this is gospel language. This is Jesus' invitation. Come to me. Jesus is saying, look, come, all of your sins have been forgiven. Your debt is fully paid. Stop fighting and surrender and enter the joy of your salvation. Do it now, today, while it is still called. Some of you right now, the Spirit of God is working in your hearts, and there's a battle going on. I have one word for you. Surrender to your eternal joy. Surrender. Now, Paul's a new creation in Christ. It's interesting, he just said, or I just read for you, The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's creation language. And it would be Paul later who says that you who come to Christ are a new creation. Paul loves creation language in his description of the gospel and salvation. The old is passed away. New is come Lying in the dirt on the road to Damascus, the father delivered Paul from the domain of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of his beloved son, as we're studying in Colossians together, right? Now everything is new. This changes everything. The way you see the world is changed. The way you see yourself is changed. The way you see the Bible, it's changed. The way you see Jesus is radically changed. God sends Ananias to restore Paul's sight, and immediately, out of joy that he is, that has filled his heart, you know what Paul does? He starts preaching. He went there to arrest Christians. Now he is one. And while they may be cowering in fear, he starts preaching. And you know what? Do you know what he preached? Listen to this. Paul began preaching the very same sermon that Stephen preached in Acts chapter 9. The one that Stephen never finished. Paul finished over and over and over and over again. He never forgot what Stephen had said just before Paul had him killed. And some suspect that when Paul lost his head in the end... Before doing so, he probably said what Stephen said Lord, do not hold this against them. Why? It's what Jesus said. And you may ask, well, where did Stephen get this sermon? That's a really good question. I'm so glad you asked. Because Luke records for us in chapter 24. On that day, those two disciples were on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And as they were walking to Emmaus, some, I think, 10 miles away, a man comes and joins them, and they don't know that it's the Lord. And he wants to know what they're talking about. And he's pretending he doesn't know. And then when they finally take a breath, he preaches this sermon For the first time, which would be preached 10,000 times afterwards. And it goes like this. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, beloved, for the first time in his life, listen to this. All eyes up here for a minute. For the first time in Paul's life, he understands his Bible. He's been studying it for years like every liberal theologian does. And he hadn't a clue what it was about. And even the parts they understood, they didn't believe and still don't. For the first time in his life, he understood that Messiah was come just as the prophet Isaiah predicted, and not just the prophet Isaiah. That he would come not as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant who would bear all of our sins in his body on the cross that we might be saved. And so Paul preached and preached. Paul, whose whole life had been all Bound up in meticulous, mosaic law-keeping, now found life in nothing but the grace of God in Christ. It's because of his teaching, amplifying the teaching of Jesus, that we find ourselves here often singing, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. You know why? Because he is sufficient. He is all that we need. And to add anything to him would dilute from him. How could he keep from preaching? Here's how he describes it He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And do you know what motivated Paul to risk his life preaching? Listen, it was the joy that he found in the love of Christ. I suspect he never forgot Jesus' words that day, and he never forgot his tone. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, the love of Christ controls me. It's as if he wakes up every morning and says, what does love for Jesus require of me today? Isn't that a great question to ask? What does the love for Christ require of me this moment? Think about it. The greatest persecutor of Christ has now become the greatest lover of Christ. Jesus was right. Those who are forgiven much love much. As he said to his dear Philippians, Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes by faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God and depends upon faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, a hint at his view of suffering, becoming becoming like him even in his death. He's saying, those whom you love, you want to become like, and I want to be as much like Jesus as possible. If he preached the gospel, I preach the gospel. If he sought the lowly and the despised, I seek the lowly and the despised. If he seeks justice, I seek justice. If he is honored, maybe I will be honored. And if he suffers, I want to suffer. We'll see that in Colossians. Paul says it's his joy to suffer with Christ. You see, beloved, when the sovereign Lord grants you the eternal hope of salvation, your soul suddenly rests upon an unshakable rock of hope. Hope. Hope isn't a wish like, I hope I win a a million dollars, which I don't know how I could because I don't play the game. It's a a foolish, it's a vacuous hope. It's an empty hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is God made you a promise. He will never go back on it. He promised you eternal life. You have eternal life. You have it. You have it. It's not that you'll get it. You have it. It is yours. It belongs to you. You own it. And when you come to Christ, you get this unshakable rock of hope. And that divine hope manifests itself in pure, risk-taking, Christ-adoring joy. No doubt that's why Paul said in Romans 12, 12, he commands us to rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Do you know such hope? Does your hope in Jesus manifest itself in joy? If so, then by all means rejoice. As Paul would say to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And he was, by the way, writing that from jail. And again I say rejoice, for it is the gift of a sovereign God, this hope, this joy, this salvation. Paul was full of such hope, and that's why he could rejoice in the Lord always. It's what made him the apostle of sovereign joy. All of this was evidence of Paul's shocking new identity. But now, fourthly, we move on to Paul's unlikely success in ministry. After his Damascus Road experience, he spent time alone in Arabia, now, this is my personal view. Uh, do you know what's in Arabia? Sinai. Uh, I think most of the commentators didn't know that. And, and surely none of us did until recently. And we don't have time to get into that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt at all that he did what, I, what Elijah did. He went to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, in Arabia. And he had some alone time with Jesus. And he had a Bible that he had to relearn. No no doubt he needed time to study the scriptures with new eyes. After that, he visited Jerusalem. That must have been frightening for all involved. Clearly, the believers there were terrified of him. But Peter took the risk of bringing him into his home where he stayed for two weeks, 15 days. And then Peter and James counseled him to go home. Go home, Paul. It's not safe for you here. Go to Tarsus. Go to Tarsus. And this is where Barnabas finds him more than a decade later. Apparently, after the stoning of Stephen, I keep mentioning Stephen because it's a pivot point in the whole story. After the stoning of Stephen, a large number of Jewish believers found their way, not only to Damascus, but to Antioch. And they were meeting together in a rather unorganized kind of way. And they were just a bunch of people who were disciples of Jesus. They didn't know what to do. They just met. But they needed to be taught the scriptures. Now, think about this. Can you imagine what those dear people must have thought when they were told that the lead professor for their first seminary of training would be the murderous Saul of Tarsus? Are you kidding me? That's why we're in Antioch. We're running from him. <laughs> and they didn't know what to think. And he comes in. And it becomes apparent immediately. And this is a new man. Can you imagine what it must have been like? The very man who forced them to flee for their lives. But fear turned to delight when they discover that the Lord Jesus has power enough even to transform a hard, wicked, murderous heart like Paul's. I mean, it would be the equivalent of taking your worst terrorist you could think of and discovering that he has come to Christ and is preaching Jesus. You think there would be people trying to kill him? Yep. You think people were trying to kill Paul? All the time. Antioch then became the home, the home base for Paul and Barnabas. It couldn't be Jerusalem, it was too dangerous. From there, they launched out into the surrounding provinces, and everywhere they went, their strategy was to visit the local synagogue on the Sabbath and teach from the Scriptures. And every Sabbath, Paul attempted to prove from the Scriptures that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah. This was the good news. This was the euangelion, the gospel. This was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same gospel that we preach today. Of course, most rejected the message. But here's what happened. In Paul's day, there were many God-fearing Gentiles, like Cornelius, you remember? Uh, and it wasn't Paul that reached Cornelius. It was Peter first. There were God-fearing people who were Gentiles, like Cornelius, who associated themselves with the local synagogues. They were drawn, as it were, to Judaism. They saw its value, and they wanted to be a part of that community. They were called proselytes. So everywhere you see in the Bible, proselytes, what they're talking about is Gentiles who were associating themselves with the Jews in the synagogue. And whenever a Jew in the synagogue rejected the gospel, Paul had a strategic response. He did this all over the place. He would say, as we read in Acts 13 46, he would, he would say this on his way out of the synagogue. He would say, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, by the way, this is an Old Testament command, I have made you, Israel, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, whenever Paul said that to the Jews, there were always proselytes, Gentiles, standing around. And how do you think they took that news? Well, Luke tells us how they took the news. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as are appointed, listen carefully, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see sovereignty? You see joy? You see Paul, the apostle of sovereign joy, sovereignty and joy, the sovereign work of God in salvation brings about joy. And here were these Gentiles. They were just trying to hitchhike on whatever blessings they could scarf off of the Jews in the synagogue. And now they're the main thing. Now they are the primary object of God's blessing. It's incredible. So what do we have here? Well, we have sovereignty. As many as were appointed to eternal life and we have joy. The Gentiles immediately began rejoicing. Why? Because the gospel is for them. The way he saw it, God made an apostle. Listen carefully. He made Paul an apostle for this purpose. Let me put the whole thing together now. And what was that purpose? To proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. You see it? This strategy of Paul's plays out again and again throughout his ministry until his second missionary journey where he sets up kind of a base camp in Corinth for a while. And then he does the same thing again in Ephesus where he established the school of Tyrannus from which many young men such as Epaphras at Colossae were trained and sent out to plant churches all over Asia Minor and beyond which just encourages us in our efforts to Plant churches. This is the Great Commission. It's part of the Great Commission. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 9 10 that Paul's ministry there was so effective, listen carefully, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And it was said that each of the seven churches named in the book of Revelation were planted by men who were trained at the school of Tyrannus under Paul's ministry. It was enormously fruitful. It's been said that in little more than 10 years Paul established the church of Jesus Christ in four provinces of the Roman Empire in addition to Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. Before AD 47, there were no churches in these provinces. In AD 57, if I do my math right, that's 10 years, Paul could speak as if his work there was done and could now begin making plans to expand in tours far into the West. In fact, at the end of the book of Romans, he says, I'm going to Spain, and I expect you to send me there. But while all of that sounds exciting and wonderful, and it was, it didn't come without suffering. This brings us to the fifth point, and I'll try to do this quickly. Paul's unrelenting suffering. Back in Damascus, When Paul was struck blind by Jesus, the Lord sent Ananias to speak to Paul and restore his vision. But when the Lord gave him his assignment, Ananias, when he gave his assignment to Ananias, he was afraid. And the Lord comforted him by saying this, Ananias, go to Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for, listen carefully, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I believe God is more glorified in our suffering well than in our health and prosperity and success. He's far more glorified in our suffering well than in our comfortable successes. I suspect Paul's suffering started in earnest as soon as he went home, remember I told you he went home to Tarsus? After his conversion, when he left Tarsus to take his role as a leading rabbi in Jerusalem, it must have made his father more than a little proud. His son would surely become the greatest Pharisee in Israel. When he returned to Tarsus, after his conversion, however, I suspect He received a traitor's welcome. His parents no no doubt bore the brunt of the scorn in the community. And you know, Paul, there's no way he wasn't going to preach Jesus. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He had to preach Christ to those he loved. He had to try to convince the leaders in the synagogue from Scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. Messiah. For that, he was most certainly flogged, repeatedly. In fact, in in 2 Corinthians 11, he offers a sample list of the ways that he suffered. He recounts in 23 and 24, experiencing this. Labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Now listen to this one. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why is that significant? Well, that mention of five times receiving 40 lashes, you would get the 40 lashes at the synagogue. And it's interesting because Luke, in his account, only mentions two. Luke didn't know Paul when Paul was in Tarsus. And there was a number of biographers I read who said the first three probably happened in Tarsus. In his home, where he was beaten almost to death. I said that his strategy was to go into a town, go into the synagogue, preach Christ, and move on to the Gentiles. I left a part out. Go into a town, preach Christ in the uh, the synagogue, and get beaten half to death. And then go to the Gentiles. It happened again and again and again and again. And Paul continues his list. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three, and, and left for dead, by the way. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers of rivers and robbers and in the city and out in the country and hardship and, and on and on it goes. What kind of man can endure that kind of suffering? I mean, good night. I was trying to open an avocado, and I poked my hand right there and thought I was going to die. <laughs> it's like a week ago. It still hurts. <laughs> All of us suffer. None of us have suffered like Paul. And we avoid suffering like the plague. From a Roman jail, Paul once wrote, to his beloved Philippians, these famous words, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, I know your bulletin promises one more point, and I was going to talk to you a little bit about his hope preserving clarity. I wanted to reserve a little time here at the end to talk about the letters of Paul, but perhaps it's better that when I come back from Ukraine and Israel that I just preach it. Besides, our childcare workers are wondering about me right now (laughs) and are being tempted. (laughs) In the meantime, there's so much application for us here as we think about the life of the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews commands us to identify men like this and imitate their faith. I've heard again and again men that I admire saying, my greatest hero is the Apostle Paul. And I go, yeah, whatever, okay. So that's, I mean, you're a preacher. And now that I've been studying Paul's life, I think, oh, there's, there's no one more worthy to be, to, whose life is worthy of emulation besides Christ himself. And that's why we take this time year after year to dive deep into the life of someone who I believe is worthy of emulation. None of us has rebelled against Christ as did the Apostle Paul. You can be forgiven and justified and redeemed, however, as Paul was. And for some of you, that needs to happen right now. And God has not called all of us to be apostles, but all of us can strive to be more effective ministers of the gospel. And some of you young men should consider whether or not God has called you into the ministry of preaching the word. We would love to help you get there, if God has gifted and called you for that purpose. And others should begin... Today, to seriously think about leaving the comforts of the United States for a new and difficult ministry where Christ has yet to be named. You say, are there still places like that? You bet there are. And they need help. And as Bill and Becky were telling us last week, there are fewer and fewer and fewer missionaries willing to go. And still, many of you simply need to just stop wasting your life on empty entertainment and begin Disciplining yourself to know Christ and to become like Paul in his love for Christ, it'll change your life. It'll give your life substance that it would never have otherwise. And all of us, frankly, could stand to resolve afresh, to fulfill our calling to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift your word is to us. It's full of so many things to learn from. And it's not all doctrine. Much of it is example. And so we praise you for the example of this one man, uniquely called by you, but who serves in so many ways, what faithfulness looks like. For him, faithfulness faithfulness called for him to lay down his life in very tangible ways. And faithfulness for us may this week require us, and love for Christ may require us to swallow our pride and our fear and to step out and speak. No, Father, would you use us? And would you help us by your Spirit transform hearts in this community as some would come to love Jesus as we love him. Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.